if you're visiting with us uh, today, uh, I appreciate you being here. I hope that you will leave here being blessed, and uh, I'm just filling in for Pastor Phil. Uh, it's hard to step into this place after his teaching, so I hope that God will, will bless you through, uh, through his word. I'm going to ask a question, and I uh, don't want anybody to raise their hands because I don't want anybody to get in trouble, okay? But you young people, how many of y'all have ever had a speeding ticket and didn't tell your parents? Oh! <laughs> and didn't tell your, your parents? How many of you spouses had a speeding ticket and you didn't tell your husband or wife? Well, I've got to admit that I have had my share in the, in the past. And uh, some I got out of, some I didn't. Uh, I was going to, to Alabama traveling on Interstate 85, and uh, I got caught doing 85 on 85, which I thought was a pretty good speed limit. <laughs> And uh, so the state patrol, Georgia State Patrol, came down the ramp and pulled in behind me and pulled me over and asked for my driver's license. So I pulled him out and gave them to him. And uh, he uh, said, follow me. Okay. So he took off. I got behind him, and we were doing probably 95 by then. I felt good about that because I was behind a state, state trooper. Well, he pulled this other guy over and uh, gets his driver's license, come, comes back to my vehicle, gives me my license. He said, you can go. He's in worse trouble than you are. <laughs> that would never happen again, I'm quite sure. But I want to tell you a story about Billy Graham. He was speeding in a small town when pulled over by the police, and he was given a ticket. Now, if I was a policeman... And Billy, I got, and I stopped Billy Graham. Do you think for one second I would give Billy Graham a ticket? No, not in this lifetime. So uh, the policeman told him he would have to go to court. When Billy Graham appeared before the judge, the judge asked him how he pled. He said, I'm guilty, Your Honor. And it was at that point that the judge recognized who Billy Graham was. So he said, I'm going to charge $1 for every mile over the speed limit, which totals $10. So the judge opens his wallet up out of his pocket, pulls out $10, attaches, to, attaches it to the ticket, and says, your debt has been paid. And later on, the judge took him out to a steak dinner. I have never been stopped by a policeman and had a steak dinner. When they start doing that, I'll start speeding more. <laughs> so Billy Graham didn't merit it because he was guilty. And he should have received the punishment. But this judge was being gracious. And he found grace in the eyes of this judge. Just as you and I have found grace in the eyes of God. We're guilty, totally guilty, but we found grace in the eyes of God. And I wonder, I'm going to ask this question. 
if you or I was arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict us? Sort of hurts, doesn't it? And I wonder if there's enough of Christ in my life that I was, if I was accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict me of being a Christian? I would hope so. I want you to turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. We're not going to read all the scripture because there's a lot of it. It's chapter 1, verse 3, goes all the way through chapter 2, verse 22. So when you have time during the week, I hope that you will, um, that you will read that. But I will read a portion of it. There are seven elements in the first few passages of Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. But more importantly, in verse 4, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. You look at the word chosen here. This gets us into the doctrine of election that confuses most and confounds many others. We will not have the time this morning or several mornings to delve into the subject of election. But I do want you to make note that it is, it is God who does the seeking. I didn't seek God. I would run away from God. If people started talking about God in my company, I would find a way to get out of that room or out of that, uh, that conversation because the very mention of God and Christianity and Christ was a very convicting conversation. And I did not want to participate in that kind of conversation because of the conviction that it would bring upon me. I didn't look for God, and you probably didn't look for God. God looked for us. Let's take the, uh, the reference to Adam. Everybody knows the story about Adam and Eve, and we don't have to do the entire thing. But after the fall of mankind, after Adam had sinned, note this. God didn't go into the garden and say, Eve, Eve, where are you? <coughs> Did you ever notice that? He said, Adam, where are you? And Adam confessed, Lord, I hid because I was ashamed. Adam didn't go looking for God to confess his sin. God went to Adam to see if he would confess his sin. And so Adam confessed. He said, Lord, he said, I, I was ashamed. I did what I should not have done. God does not pick and choose who's going to be saved or who's not going to be saved. Or else we would have to take John 3.16 completely out of the Bible. Tear that page out, rip it up, throw it in the trash can. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That whosoever, says Jim, 
John, Jane, Bill, Bob, Sue, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, the Bible says, shall be saved. So I want to take this opportunity to say that there is none that seeketh after God. Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 11. There is none that understands. There is none that seeks God. Sometimes when there's a tragedy in a person's life, then they may seek God. But maybe God sought them through that tragedy and they came to know God and came to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord. Look in verse 5. The Bible says that he has adopted us. Herein lies or lays the doctrine of predestination, which is almost always misunderstood. And to keep this brief, I will say that nowhere in the Scripture does it say that people are predestined to hell. Nor does it say that people are predestined to heaven. It is a choice that we make that decides our eternal fate. The Bible says we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and we deserve eternal damnation, but the blood of Jesus Christ washes away all the sins of those who believe and put their trust in him. The blood of Christ, let me repeat that, washes away all sin. Not just the, the mediocre ones, not just the lightly ones, not just the bad ones, but all sin. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. He has accepted us just like we are. I know that you have seen some of the older Billy Graham crusades before he got to the point where he could not hold crusades any longer. And at the end of his sermon, he always had a plea in the invitational songs. Anybody know what that song is? Anybody know what the song was? Exactly, just as I am. That song was written by Charlotte Elliott in 1835. Here are their lyrics. I will not sing it because if I sing it, there will be nobody left in this room. I don't even sing in the shower, afraid the water will stop running. Listen to these words. We've often sang this. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. That's the only way we can come to Christ, It's just like we are. I've had people, when I've witnessed to them and, and tried to lead them to Jesus Christ, they would say, well, well, Brother Jim, I, I'm just not ready. I, you know, I've, got, I've got to change some things in my life before I start going to church. I've got to change some things in my life before I can become a Christian. No, no. Just as you are. That's the only way that Jesus Christ will accept us just like we are. You look throughout the Scripture. There was nothing that people had to do to get ready to receive Jesus Christ as their personal Savior other than confessing their sins. And when we confess our sins, 
The Bible says that Jesus Christ is faithful and just to forgive, forgive us of all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Every bit of it. There's nothing left there. We start off with a clean slate. If we could ever reach perfection, that moment of salvation, that is the most perfect we will ever be, is when the sins that we have committed all our life flee from us and Jesus Christ comes into our life and our heart and gives us the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, after the point of salvation, that is when you start getting attacked. And usually the first attack from Satan is that he gets you to doubt your salvation. You ever had that happen to you? Boy, I did. It wasn't very long after becoming a believer in Jesus Christ that, that Satan began to throw all those fiery darts at me, and I began to doubt that I was saved. The devil said, well, you didn't say this right. You didn't do this right. You only got on one knee instead of two knees. You didn't bow low enough to the carpet. All kinds of things he will present to us to make us doubt our salvation at the point of becoming a Christian. Look at verse 7, the first part, verse 7a. In whom you have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of sin according to the riches of his glory. I'll just go ahead and read it all. The scripture here says that he has redeemed us. Redeemed means purchased by paying a price. Jesus bought you. Jesus bought me. How? By the precious blood that he shed upon the cross of Calvary. It was through his death and the shedding of his blood that redeemed me. And 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and following says, that we are not redeemed with corruptible things, but by the precious blood of Christ. He didn't buy us with money. He didn't buy us with silver. He didn't buy us with gold. No corruptible thing. His blood was incorruptible. And that's how he purchased us. He bought us lock, stock, and barrel, just like we were. Didn't ask us to change anything. But when Jesus Christ comes into a person's life and into their heart, he makes them change. And you can't help but change. The last part of verse 7 says that he has forgiven us. The word forgiven means to carry away. Carry away. There's another hymn written by J. Wilbur Chapman in 1910 entitled Glorious Day. I will not sing this either. One day when heaven was filled with his praises, one day when sin was as black as could be, Jesus came forth to be born of a virgin, dwelt among men, my example is he. Living he loved me. <laughs> Dying he saved me. Buried he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. One day he's coming, O glorious day. We have, once we become a Christian, once we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and we accept him as our personal Savior and Lord, that is preparation the rest of our life, however long it is, to get ready to meet him.
And that's what this life is all about after you become a Christian. It is getting ready to meet Jesus. Now, he's going to take us just like we are. But, you know, sometimes I think, do I really want to go to heaven the way I, I, I am? Or do, is there some changes I need to make? There's always changes I need to make. I am not perfect. I don't walk on water. I still sin. You do? Yes. Do you? Yes. Every one of us sins from day to day. That is just the sin nature in us. But the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin if we confess those sins. You recall some time ago when I preached and I alluded to Psalm 103.12 that Jesus cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. You remember that? And I walked over this way. I said, okay, this way I'm going west. This way I'm going east. Now, no matter which way I go, if I start walking this way, I'm always going east. And if I start walking this way, I'm always going west. If I walk west all the way around the globe, I'm still going west. There is no east or west until you turn around. That's how far Jesus has cast our sin from us, as far as the east is from the west. And I've heard people say, well, he cast our sins into the sea of forgetfulness. And I'm trying to recall how deep the deepest part of the ocean is, but it runs this, this valley on the ocean floor runs hundreds of miles, thousands of miles, and it's almost a mile deep. That's pretty good. You can't swim in that kind of depth. So if he cast our sins into the uttermost parts of the sea, the deepest parts of the sea, into the sea of forget, forgetfulness that no man has seen the bottom of that thing, never to be brought up. God doesn't have a memory as far as our past sins are concerned. He forgets about those because they're under the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He doesn't remember them anymore. And that's what the scripture says. He forgets all about those things that Jim Reader did all of his entire life prior to becoming a Christian. And the only way that I can get rid of sin now in my life, and the only way that you can get rid of sin now in your life is to confess those sins. And we ought to do it on a daily basis. We ought to do it on a momentary basis. Because I know when I sin, I should say, God, forgive me. And that quick, he does. In verses 11 through 12, in Ephesians chapter 1. Now, I'm not going to read all the scriptures. We'd be here till 2.30. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> but I do want you to make a note to read John chapter 17 sometime this week. And note how many times uh, Christ called us those whom thou hast given me. We are his inheritance. And he, on the, other, uh, on the other hand, is our inheritance. My family was not a wealthy family. We were very poor. Nobody, I didn't have this rich, rich uncle that owned a, 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 you know, a railroad. I didn't have this rich uncle that owned an airlines. So, we didn't have an inheritance. You may have had an inheritance, and that's good. But the scripture teaches 
We are Christ's inheritance, and Christ is our inheritance in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Look in verse 13. This is a good one. In whom you also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. How many of y'all have... Uh, you, you ladies, have ever had to open a jar of pickles? And it's really hard, you know, it's just, and you can't do it. You give it to your husband. He goes, pops that thing right off there. And the wife always said, I loosened it for you. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but anyway, when that lid pops and it goes, that means it was sealed. <laughs> And when you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And do you know what is so good about this? Satan can't open that jar of salvation up and let it out. You are sealed until the day of redemption. And then you no longer need to be sealed because you are with God, you are with Christ in heaven. My mother used to do some canning, and she had this pressure cooker. And she would do those jars in there and put those lids on it, and she would have that water boiling, and you'd hear those lids going, psh, psh. that means they were sealing. And that would last forever, as long as that jar was not open. Our salvation lasts forever, and the jar of salvation can never be opened. And he says here, you trusted after you heard the word of truth. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God or the gospel, which after hearing you believed, then you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, four verse 30, And grieve not, the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed until the day of redemption. Now, the word grieve here means to cause pain or distress. When we grieve the Holy Spirit, we're causing the Holy Spirit pain. You realize that? When we sin, we're causing the Holy Spirit pain. When your child does something they're not supposed to do, it causes you pain. When your spouse does something they're not supposed to do, it causes you pain. <coughs> By the same token, when we do something we're not supposed to, uh, to do, it causes pain or distress to the Holy Spirit of God. Now, my second point, and there's five more to go after this one, but these are brief. There's the, the uh, prayer for knowledge and power, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 21 Paul was praying that the God of our Lord Jesus, the Father of glory, would give the saints the spirit of wisdom and revelation that they would have a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. He wasn't praying for head knowledge. He was praying that they would have a heart knowledge and have an intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He also prayed for power for the saints. We... As believers, she'd also pray for power in our lives. It's not wrong to have power. And it's the Holy Spirit who gives us 
that power. And we have every right to ask God to give us the power of the Holy Spirit. You have his presence when you become a believer, but do you have his power? That is something that has to be exercised. And you need to start asking, and I need to start asking God on, normally on a daily basis, give me more of the Holy Spirit so I can have more power as a Christian. And I'm not talking about power like our politicians want. And don't get me started on that this morning either. They are so power hungry that it is despicable. They want to put us into a box and say, you can do this or you can do that, but you can't do this or you can't do that. Well, I'm the kind of rebellious Christian that wants to rise up and say, watch me. We used to say, you ever heard that, that phrase, I double dog dare you? Well, I'm a double dog dare. Dare me to do it and I will do it. Don't tell me I can't go to church because I'm going. I don't care if you're the governor or you're the mayor or you're the president or the president-elect of the United States. You do not stop God's people from worshiping the almighty God, no matter who you are. Amen. You, as a politician, don't have that kind of power. God has that kind of power. And it's time that our politicians and our leaders in this United States begin to know that God is all-powerful and they are nothing but a crumb. I didn't mean to get on that, but I did. <laughs> when we ask for this power and God grants us that power, we can stand and not faint. We don't have to be afraid. I will not fear what man can do to me because God owns me, and he has my soul intact. Let's look at point number three, Christ to be head of his body. The church, which is the universal body of believers. I asked deacons in a church, I preached revival, and we had a meeting uh, there with the deacons and, you know, some more people there in the church prior to the uh, kickoff of the revival. And uh, I asked the deacons, what was their function in the church? A deacon replied, I'm a deacon to run the church. What? You're appointed a deacon to run the church. Hmm. You want to know what my response was? Do you really want to know what my response was? I told him, I said, that is exactly what is wrong with this church now, and that's why you're in need of revival, because you think that you run the church. It is Jesus Christ who is head of the church, and not you. And you will never be the head of the church. It was Jesus and Jesus only that's the head of the church. I went on to say to this gentleman that, that if you're a deacon, then you're a servant of God. And Christ did not appoint you to run the church. When Jesus got that basin of water 
and he washed the disciples' feet. That showed a tremendous amount of hum humility, not just on Jesus' part, but also his disciples. If Jesus was here, and he said, uh, Jim, I want to wash your feet. If I was humble, I would acquiesce to his demand. But such humility to wash somebody else's feet is a tremendous amount of humility. And there are churches that practice that, I don't know if you call it ritual or whatever. I don't want to come in here next Sunday and have anybody washing my feet, okay? <laughs> Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Not only this body, but every other body. Jesus Christ is the head of the church universal. And there is no one, no person, no thing that can ever take that place. Fourth point. Here's the method of Gentile sal salvation, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. The Bible says that we were made alive who were once dead in trespasses and sin, where in times past, according, now look, look at, look, look, in time past, past tense, walked according to the prince of the power of the air. In times past means that they used to walk according to the steps of the evil one. And becoming a Christian, you no longer walk to the cadence of Satan and the evil one. You no longer cow down to the prince and the power of the air. You are somebody in Jesus Christ. And with him in you and the Holy Spirit about you and in you, you have more power than you realize. And it's time that we as a church and it's time that we as believers start exercising the power that we have in Jesus Christ. Even when we were dead in trespasses and sin, Jesus made us alive. He quickened us, which means to make alive. In verses 8 and 9, it says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now look at the next part. I've got the Gentile position by nature. I've got the old position on one column. Is it up there yet? Yes. There it is. You have your old position, and you have a new position. The old position was without Christ. The new position is in Christ. The old position says that we were aliens. Now we're a holy nation. The old position was that we were strangers. The Bible says we're no more strangers. <clears throat> Ephesians 4, 4 says there was no hope. Now we're called in one hope. That one hope is Jesus Christ. And it says that the old position was without God, and now the new position is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we went from the old to the new. Point number six. We're almost finished. Jew and, Jew and Gentile, one body in Christ. Anyone who does not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God does not accept him as Savior by faith will not see the kingdom of God, whether it be Jew or Gentile. <clears throat> there are some people who believe that all Jews are going to heaven. Not so. It is true that God chose Israel and the Jewish people as his chosen people. To do what? To propagate the gospel. 
They failed to do that. They didn't believe that Jesus Christ was the Redeemer. So he took that privilege away from them. And I'll get to that part, part in just a moment. Jesus broke down the barrier that he might reconcile both Jews and Gentiles unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity between the Jew and the Gentile. Now, if a Gentile was lying on the side of the road bleeding to death, a Jew would not stop and help them because it was unclean. And so there was this, this barrier between the Jews and the Gentiles. The last point, the church, a temple for the habitation of God through Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. Israel was God's chosen nation, as I said, but they rejected the Redeemer and suffered the consequences. The kingdom was taken from them to a nation, the Bible says, bringing forth fruits thereof. Matthew chapter 21, verse 43. Now, who was that nation? Was it United States of America? No. Was it India? No. Was it Ethiopia? No. It was the Gentile nation. To those who believed that Jesus Christ was the Messiah and accepted him and believed on him, that's where it went to. I know very few, very few, what I would call Christian Jews, because most of them still believe that Jesus has not come yet, that the Redeemer, the Messiah, is still yet to come. Boy, they're going to be surprised when it happens. The new nation is the church. The Bible says a chosen generation, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, and 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. In the Old Testament, the nations were reckoned by their descent from Shem, Ham, or Japheth. Genesis chapter 10, need to read that. In Acts, we see three families united in Christ. In Acts chapter 8, a descendant of Ham is saved, the Ethiopian treasure. He was the treasurer of Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. And Philip's riding on his chariot. But the Holy Spirit told him, I want you to go to this certain place to see the certain person. Well, the Ethiopian was on his chariot, had stopped to read the Old Testament scripture. Philip pulled up beside or close to him, jumped off his chariot, went over there running. He said, do you understand what you're reading? The Ethiopian said, well, not really. I don't. And Philip told him, Philip, the Bible says that Philip began to preach and Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest that what thou readest? And he said, How can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture, Isaiah 53, verse 7 through 8, which he read was this. He slaughtered, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And like a lamb done before his shear, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? 
for his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee of whom speaketh the prophet, this of himself or some other man. Then Philip opened his mouth and began the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And when churches quit preaching Jesus, we are doomed. And there's a lot of churches out there that don't preach Jesus anymore. They preach some mamby, pamby, washed away, washed up rhetoric. But my friend, there's no one that will ever come to know Jesus Christ as a personal Savior and Lord unless they hear the gospel. And the Bible says, how shall they hear except by a preacher? Makes sense, doesn't it? And that's what Philip did. Philip began to preach unto him Jesus, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that Jesus suffered and bled, and he was buried, and he was resurrected and went to be with the Father once again. When we start preaching Jesus in our testimony, people say, well, you know, I just live my life so that people will see that I'm a Christian. People don't see that. They may see that you're a good person, but the only way that they're going to know that we are believers in Jesus Christ is that we tell them. We invite people to church. We invite people to dinner, lunch, whatever. But how many times do we invite people to Jesus? How are you at work? How are you at school? How am I at work? I don't go to school, but how am I at work? How am I with those people around me? Do they see enough Jesus in me that they would want what I have? Sometimes yes, maybe. Sometimes not, maybe. But unless I say, do you know Jesus as your personal Savior? Now I know that you can get in trouble at work because some places don't allow this. But there are subtle ways that you can do certain things to make people know beyond any shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ is Lord of your life and that they need him as their personal Savior. In Acts chapter 9, you need to read all three of these. Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 9, and Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 9, a descendant of Shem, Saul of Tarsus, later known as the Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 10, the descendants of Japheth, the Gentiles in the household of the Roman soldier Cornelius. The gospel works. Sin has divided mankind, but by the Spirit of God, he unites mankind. All believers, regardless of national background, belong to that holy nation with citizenship in heaven. Philipp, uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. So it doesn't matter if you're from Cancun, if you're from South Africa, if you're from North Africa, Zimbabwe, uh, Ethiopia, India, wherever you're from. If you're a believer, we are all united in Christ. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And those who are maybe watching online... If you do not have that citizenship in heaven, you can. The passport is the cross of Christ. 
And if you believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God and place your trust in him, you can be saved and have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I invited some, some friends in, in uh, Georgia. Uh, I don't know if he and his family are watching. Uh, his name is Roger. He worked for me for several years when I was doing construction work, remodeling, uh, restoring historical homes down in Georgia. Roger was the, one of the funniest guys I've ever seen in my life. Beautiful family. Uh, used to live in a little town called Tombsboro, Georgia. Population 25. <laughs> it's probably more than that, but it's a very, very small town. They have one little crossroads with a caution light and one store and one church. Well, they may have two churches. <clears throat> Roger's a very dear friend of mine. And I don't know if Roger and his family are watching, as I said. But Roger was one of the funniest guys I've ever known in my life. Roger's an African-American. And he said on his third son, he said, Jim, he said, would you mind if I let you be my son's godfather? And I thought, what an honor. What a privilege. I told him, I said, Roger, no. I would just be tickled to death to be your third son's godfather. He had three boys. One of them just got, it's not the word ordained, uh, sworn in as a uh, judge over in Georgia. Uh, one of the others, the second one, I think, uh, has a degree from university, and he works with autistic children. The third one is still in college. I am so proud of what Roger and his wife Michelle have done with those three boys. And I just hope and pray that his three boys will come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. They're not listening. They're probably wherever they're supposed to be at school or whatever, but I hope that Roger and Michelle are. And I have one other howdy-do to say, and that's to my sister, Dottie. She told me if I couldn't say anything about her, <laughs> good, not to say anything at all, so I won't say anything. Just kidding. I have a wonderful sister that I love dearly. And I'll tell you a short story before I close. I have a 1966 Pontiac convertible. And it was during the summer, and I let the top down, and my sister was here visiting. We, uh, we went downtown on Main Street cruising. Had some, uh, some 60s music going, you know. And she was sitting in the back seat with this pink scarf over her head so the wind wouldn't blow her Dolly Parton hair. <laughs> and uh, she was sitting back there doing this. Waving at people on Main Street, downtown Greenville. And people were going, who is that? They started waving back. People were stopping on the sidewalk. Wanted to know who this celebrity was riding the 66 Pontiac convertible. So if my sister is watching in Grays Lake, Illinois, I did say something good about you and I love you. <laughs> and you know what? Jesus loves you. And he loves me. 
my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. What's it written with? The, I believe the blood of Jesus. I really believe that. And you know what? It can never be erased. It's written there for all eternity. When he opens that book up, and I'm standing there before him, he says, yes, there you are. There you are. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I praise you and give you thanks that Jesus Christ was so willing to die on the cross for the sins of the world. I pray that if there's one person online that doesn't know you as Savior and Lord, if there's one person here that doesn't know you as Savior and Lord, that today will be the day of salvation. I pray the Holy Spirit will write on the tablet of their heart right now that they need Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. I pray for the Holy Spirit to empower us, each and every one of us, to be that what we're supposed to be, what we claim to be, that we would indeed let the world know that we are not afraid, that we have the power of God working in and through us. And we shall not faint, nor shall we run weary. We will run the course, and we will finish the race. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. to see